0: Good morning. You guys can find your seats. We're going to get started now. It is a beautiful morning, although a little cold. But just to remind you, we are at the end of February, which means we're close to the beginning of March, which means... We're close to the beginning of spring. Can I hear an amen? I think we're ready for some of that. This morning we find ourselves in Genesis and in chapter 18. You can turn there with me in the book of Genesis chapter 18. And if we have time, we're going to ask two questions. The first for sure, the second we'll see. But the first question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? That is, is anything too difficult for God to do? One of the things I continually remind myself of is that God can do anything. It is the message to Abram, or now Abraham and Sarah, it is the message to them about the promises of God. It is the message to all of us in our life and on our faith journey to be reminded that God can do anything. I, when I look at our world, And I think you know this, I I try to be a pretty positive person, Not, not blind to the problems in our world, but certainly aware that God can do anything. So when I look at the problems in our nation, I say God can do anything. When I look at the corruption, and there's so much of it, our national debt. The Holocaust of abortion, when I look at all of the problems that we face as a nation and in our, in our world, the craziness, the wars, the rumors of wars, the pestilence, all the things going on, rather than taking a position of, oh, here we go, it's the last days, which it very well might be, but that's not the point. I know God can do anything. So when I pray, I don't pray, oh, Lord, get us out of here because it looks like everything's going to fall apart. I say, Lord God, you can do anything. So the first question we're going to hope to answer from the Word of God today is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. We want to be reminded in our faith that you can do anything. We want to be reminded that you are working on our behalf, that all things are working together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. We do know that you are working on our behalf. And rather than looking at the wickedness in the world and giving in, to despair. We, we want to give our hearts to you in, in faith, not, not in blindness to our world, but praying not just positively, but praying with confidence, knowing that you desire to do a work and that it's never too late to cry out for a revival or restoration. Uh, it's never too late for reformation in the church. It's never too late with you because you're the God of second, third, fourth, the 110th chances. And we love you and we ask that you would speak to us from your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at chapter 18 and we'll start by reading verses 1 through 8. We're going to see in this chapter that the Lord revealed to Abraham significant events that would soon t- take place. Now, in the Bible, we see many examples of God coming to a man or a woman of faith and revealing, sometimes even to heathen kings, revealing in advance things that are about to take place. Now, why does God do that? You know, m- many of us wish we had, you know, next week's lottery numbers. You know, we wish we, wish we knew who was going to w- win this particular sports match, uh, a basketball game or a football game, but we, we don't know the answers to many things. But once in a while. God will reveal to one of his people, or to even, like I said, a a heathen king, what he's about to do. Now, there are reasons for that. One of the things we know, and Jesus made this clear, is he reveals things before they happen, so when they happen, we'll believe. That is, God tells us in advance, things are going to take place, so that when they take place, our faith will be encouraged. It will increase. So it's not so much that we can write a book and have a website, or do a YouTube video, or a blog, uh, or a podcast. It's not so that we can look so clever that people want to spend money on what we have to say in written form. The reason God reveals to us things that will happen beforehand is so that we will believe. Now, Abraham is about to receive information about the future. Actually, two pieces of information, and the first is As the Lord actually appears in human form with two angels at his side, he comes to Abraham Abraham, to spend some time with him. Uh, That is, Abraham is going to receive some visitors. And we're going to see that God desires to have that relationship face-to-face with Abraham. So let's read. In chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared, that is, Jehovah appeared to Abraham Near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, and Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance to, to, of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And he said, "If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant. Do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree." let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. And he then brought some curds and some milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Now we see this, it's, it, it's kind of odd because it's not often, it's not the only time, but it's not often that God appears in human form in the Old Testament, but he does. And that's an interesting thought because here you see the Lord appearing with, with we're going to see in a minute, it's not three men, but it's three individuals. One is the Lord, the other, are the two angels, and they appear to Abraham to spend time with him, and he welcomes them into his home and shows them great hospitality. Now, in the Middle East, even today, one of the most important things culturally uh, that a person can do is welcome someone into their home and show them hospitality. Uh, That is a beautiful part of the Middle Eastern culture, Semitic culture, Uh, among Arabs, among Muslims even today, and uh, certainly among the Jews of that time as well. Now, they weren't really Jews just yet. These were people who lived in the Middle East. And as a part of the culture, when you welcome someone into your home, they were under your protection and you were to care for them. And so that being the case, Abraham, you can see this goes way back even before the Jewish people. This is a, a cultural norm in the Middle East. Now, the Lord and his angels, they appear in physical form. Now, the scripture tells us in the book of Exodus, even in the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, and in the epistles in 1 John, that no one has ever seen God at any time. And there was this understanding that if you were ever to see God, you would die. No one can see God and live. Now, that does seem to contradict what we're seeing here. So what, what's going on? Well, when we say in the scriptures and when we read that no one has ever seen God at any time, we're talking about God in his the triune God, we're talking about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God as the creator, God as the sustainer, God as the almighty El Shaddai. You you could never experience God in that way and live. It, it just being in his presence would destroy you, as the book of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. So no one can see God in their flesh and live. The, the holiness of God would simply you would disintegrate in the presence of a holy God. That's the point. So what's going on here? Well, if no one's ever seen God at any time, and yet people have interacted with God in human form, then could this be something different than the triune God? And I believe it is. I think what we're seeing here is an Old Testament appearance of the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ, but this is pre-incarnate. This is before he became human flesh. This is him in human form. And so God appears, later we'll see, to Moses and to others. But here, to Abraham, he appears as a man. So no, it's not Jesus in the human flesh, but it is the Son of God. Before he was born as a child and and became the Savior, the God-man, he appears to Abraham in this way. He's called Jehovah here. He speaks as the Lord, and he speaks to Abraham as the Lord. So it's no question that it's God. But if if Abraham was able to have this interaction with him, it can't be the triune God of the universe, the creator of the universe, because we know that Abraham could never have experienced God in that way and lived. So I believe what we're seeing is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but of course before he became flesh. Now Abraham seems to have immediately recognized their true identity. He, he he recognized something about these what appeared to be men to be something different than just men wandering in the area that he was living. He immediately made preparations to prepare a wonderful meal for them. Now, notice they're going to bake bread. Has anyone ever baked bread? I never have, but if you've baked bread, you know it takes a little time, right? It doesn't take 5 minutes. So, baking bread would certainly have taken some time. By the way, preparing and roasting a tender calf, we're not talking about you know, a leg of lamb. We're talking about a whole calf. Uh, that would have taken some time as well. So this wasn't a quick stopover. This was an afternoon. This was a, a time where there was interaction between Abraham and ultimately Sarah and the Lord and two angels that accompany him. Now, it seems that the Lord is truly patient and never in a hurry. And The first thing I want to kind of focus in on today is you'll notice that God is not in a hurry. We live in New Jersey we don't know anything but being in a hurry. We live in a way where we're constantly doing something on our way to somewhere. We seldom sit still unless we're in traffic. And even then, we tend to be very antsy. I want you to ask yourself a question. When's the last time you just stood still or sat down for a few minutes? I'm trying to cultivate, it's been the last couple of years, I'm trying to cultivate uh, an environment of peace in my life. And what that requires me to do in this crazy world is to stand still for a little while. Now, I'm not saying you have to, you know, take up yoga, although there's some benefits to stretching and exercise, or even go to the gym or take up some other physical art. But when you learn to be still, when you learn to be quiet, when you learn to calm yourself down and not be cluttered with the thoughts of the day, it is more likely you'll hear from God than not. When I'm quiet, the only problem I have is remembering the many things that God speaks to my heart. Rather than worrying about, oh, did God speak to me? I'm, I'm more trying to process just how much he said. And that can happen when you're studying the word. That can happen when you're in church, in worship. That can happen when you're in fellowship with others. Or that can happen when you're serving the Lord. That can happen when you're just standing still and thinking about the many things that God is showing you. So just as an encouragement, if you're constantly on your way to somewhere, if you're constantly busy, if you're always doing things and your mind is always racing, you're probably not going to hear from God in the same way as if you take a few moments each day and have some quiet time. Now, quiet time is a misnomer because what a lot of Christians do in our culture They have their quiet time, which may be five or ten minutes, whatever, maybe longer. And then they just go off on a rat race for the day. I would encourage you to live a little differently. It's okay to have quiet time. It's actually essential. Maybe reading through a commentary or reading through a devotional or studying the word of God or all of those things or a moment in prayer. But wouldn't it be better? Think about it with me. Wouldn't it be better if throughout the day you remain still and quiet and open to hearing the voice of the Lord? That requires being prepared to hear from God. That requires being open and aware of your surroundings and not distracted from the spiritual realm. So living in a way where you're constantly aware of God's presence is perhaps even better, if you had to make a choice, than taking 15 minutes to be with God and then going about your business. Abraham is aware of what's going on around him. And as a consequence, God comes and... he's not in a a rush. And so Abraham gets to spend quality time with God because he was open and aware of his surroundings. Now, he wants to serve them this meal, and so he himself waits on them. He didn't eat with them out of respect and out of reverence for God and the angels that are with him. So he respectfully stood near them in the shade should they need anything. It's the heat of the day. This isn't a time when you would work. This is a time when you would rest. And It seems that the Lord and his angels do have the ability to eat food. Now, there's people who like to meditate on questionable things. And one of the things you could spend your whole life doing is asking the question, well, are we going to eat in heaven? Italians need to know. (laughs) If it's really called heaven, do they have marinara? You know, like what is going to happen in heaven? I mean, this is is how we are as people. Are we going to get to eat? Could it be heaven if there's no food? Well, listen, I can tell you this. We won't need to eat. But if I have anything to do with it, there'll be food in heaven, you know. Um, But when Jesus came in his resurrected body, he ate for the purpose of showing them he wasn't a spirit. But I don't think he needed to eat. Well, isn't it interesting? Does God need to eat? Well, when he took on human flesh, he certainly did. But here he is in human form, and he does. What is that all about? Well, I could be here all day and never come to an adequate answer, but I can tell you that God can do anything. And so he comes to them, uh, to Abraham and Sarah, in the heat of the day. And they sit down, and he offers them a meal. And the Lord and his angels sit down and enjoy that meal. It's interesting. Uh, They're not vegetarians either. Just thought I'd throw that out there, folks. In fact, not only is this not a vegetarian meal, it's veal. Not only is it not a vegetarian meal, it's veal. Now, there, I know some people who feel that basically you're the Antichrist if you have veal. Uh, I will had veal this week, so I have to be honest with you. I have no issue there. Uh, so this was not a vegetarian meal. Uh, this, this, some people might have an issue with veal, but they didn't, and God didn't, so I don't. Um, also, very important, uh, it's not a kosher meal. What? Yeah, it's not a kosher meal. How could it be a kosher meal? It, 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 you realize that it included milk? So you're having milk and meat at the same time, which is, if you follow the dietary laws, the kosher laws, is wrong. But remember, those, those laws, first of all, the law had not yet been given. But let's take a step back. Because these laws were given later, but listen, Abraham, the angels, and even the Lord didn't follow kosher laws. That's something to think about. What's that all about? Well, I think that probably what has happened is is when man gets involved in anything, he sort of misinterprets things. And uh, it does seem to be a, mes- a misinterpretation of Scripture that the law of separation, that is milk and meat, is really interpreted from a very questionable portion of Scripture that has more to do with pagan practices than it does with dietary restrictions. In fact, it's not that, that law, that kosher law of the separation of meat and, and um, dairy is uh, actually not in the portion of the law that talks about dietary restrictions. It's in the portion of the law that talks about restrictions on pagan practices. And we can get into that another time, but clearly God doesn't keep kosher. I just want to throw that out there. Neither do the angels, and neither do I. Okay, so the Lord now repeats something. As he comes out there and spends time with Abraham and Sarah, he repeats a promise that Sarah would have a son within a year. Let's, let's look at verses 9 through 15. The Lord asked, where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said, and then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, uh, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well-advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, so Sarah laughed. She laughed to herself as she thought, Am I, after I am, worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Well, then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did. You did laugh. Now, this is interesting because, on so many levels, but it's interesting because God, in human form, is having a conversation. It says the Lord Jehovah is speaking with Abraham. Again, in in human form. Uh, This is just fascinating to me, and could you imagine... Could you imagine? But Abraham wasn't surprised. He knew he was having a conversation with the Lord, and he knew that these were heavenly beings with the Lord. And all of this must have taken place shortly after the Lord's appearance in the previous chapter, which we studied last week. This promise is that Sarah would have a son within the year. And it seems that Abraham had chosen not to share this promise with his wife, for whatever reason. He had laughed in the last chapter last week. We saw in chapter 17, verse 17, he had laughed. He had laughed due to the unlikelihood of them having a son at their age. Sarah, when she finally hears the promise from the Lord's lips, Sarah also laughed to herself in disbelief when she overheard this promise. So both of them laughed for different reasons, but both of them laughed. And we'll see they'll name, they'll name their child Isaac, which means laughter, and it's appropriate. By the way, Abraham, almost 100 years old, certainly approaching impotence. She's around 90. That is, Sarah's around 90, certainly past the age of childbearing. She had been infertile her entire married life. And so the, the likelihood of this, well, it's just not possible. It's just not possible. Well, the Lord reassured her that he can do anything. Can I hear an amen? amen. This is the first question we get to and we must understand and appreciate Is anything too hard for the Lord? Verse 14. And when you answer that question properly, you'll find out nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. And that includes anything God chooses to do. Now that doesn't mean God's going to do the impossible just because you want him to. But it does mean that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Is he a man that he should lie? For the Son of Man, that he should change his mind? Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill, the scripture says in Numbers? So we know that we can trust God's promises, do we? Now let's talk about a few things that God said he would do. Never leave us nor forsake us. Working all things together for our good, those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Do you understand that, that God has made many promises in his word? One of the things he's told us not to be afraid because we can trust him. So if you do trust God, is there any reason for you to live in fear? Is there any reason for you to be constantly perplexed about what's going on in our world or, or dreading getting up in the morning or despairing or being depressed over the circumstances in our world. There's nothing more depressing to me than when, when you look at the news and they show you all this negativity and people being murdered and, and all kinds of awful things happening, even in New York and the cities that we live in, rampant crime. You can become very fearful. You can become very negative, And really, it's hard to understand how God allows these things. But He does. Clearly, God could stop it last week if he wanted to, and one day he will. But until then, we have to trust the Lord and ask, or maybe answer the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And sort of a meditation for us each and every day is to be reminded that God is in control, amen? And if he can do anything, if he chooses not to, it's, it's really best But if he chooses to, well, he can. He doesn't need our permission to intervene in miraculous ways in our lives. And he will if he chooses to. And if he does, he's not limited in any way, for he is sovereign. Amen? That should be a very encouraging thought. When you think about the potential for global war, when you think about the problems we see in our world, corruption, the wickedness, the crime. When you see these things, it's very easy to start to think that God has lost control of his universe. Far from it. Far from it. And then you might say, well, Pastor Tim, if he's a loving God, how can he allow these things? And listen, I have those questions too, but is anything too hard for him? Well, it's not. And you need to be reminded of that. Interesting that the Lord reassured them that he can do anything. He wondered at Sarah's lack of faith and her inability to believe in his power. Of course, if God said it, he's going to do it. Now, of course, Sarah tried to cover up her disbelief, but the Lord knows all things. He knows if you're here today thinking, as I say these words, I don't know if I believe that. You're thinking, I'm not sure that what pastor's saying is true. Or you're thinking it may be true, but I have a hard time believing it. He knows that. You can laugh with joy. You can laugh at disbelief. And I can tell you this, there's no need for you not to believe this to be true. God can do all things. Well, that's the first question. Let's look at the second today. The first question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? The second question is, will God judge the righteous with the wicked? Now, we know the scripture is clear. The wicked will be judged. And it's also equally clear that the righteous will be saved. Now, how are we righteous? We've talked about this. Abraham, by faith, was made righteous. His righteousness came from faith. So we're not talking about a righteousness that's like, you're perfect, you're so good, God has no choice but to save you or to protect you or to bless you. We're talking about a righteousness that comes simply because you believe the first question we answered today. Is anything too hard? And you say, no, God can do anything. And God has sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for our sins, who rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we know that truth. That's the message of salvation. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again and is coming again. That truth of the gospel that we have put our faith in, That we believe, and of course, because by faith we believe that we are now saved, that that salvation promised by God is not too difficult, wasn't too difficult for him to accomplish. And it's not too difficult for him to spare us and save us or to bring us home through death and suffering. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, everything with God, all things are possible. We've talked about that even recently. So here the Lord is about to reveal... To Abraham, his decision to judge the cities of the plains. Now, the cities of the plains uh, were interesting places to live. We'll see there were five cities of the plains. We've talked about them before. They were in that area of what is now called the Dead Sea. But at the time, this was a very fertile area and it was a good place to live. Sadly, the cities of the plain became very wicked. I look at our nation. And I think much like the cities of the plains, we we have been blessed by God in so many wonderful ways. You know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and and sing God bless America, but if I did, I'd tell you the words are true. God has truly blessed our great nation. But when we look at our nation today, it's easy to find fault. It's easy to see the problems. It's easy to to say, well, well, God certainly should bring judgment. In fact, some of us are praying for it. I'm not saying me, but maybe, maybe some of us are actually praying, Lord, children are suffering. Women are being abused. The world's gone crazy. We're embracing sin. We're calling evil good and good evil. When are you going to get involved and bring judgment? But remember the question, will he judge the righteous with the wicked? And I think we'll see that the answer to that is no, he doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. But he does and will judge the wicked. And it's not too hard for him to do that. It's not as if he's forgotten about all the things that need to be dealt with in our nation or the corruption or the things we see and break our heart. It's not as if he's forgotten, but at the same time, he brings judgment in his time. So here's what we learn. We'll read verses 16 through 19. Here, the Lord revealing to Abraham his decision to bring judgment on these cities. In verse 16, when the men got up to leave, and of course, they're not men. They look like men, but they're not. We know that. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. That's a reaffirmation of the promise, of course, a confirmation of the promise. But the Lord wanted Abraham to remember what he's about to do for him. Now, we haven't even gotten to the judgment yet. And first, you see, because Abraham is considered righteous, that the promises are reiterated. So when you're thinking about judgment, which I think is probably overdue in our culture, but when you're thinking about judgment, the first thing you need to remember is that doesn't invalidate the promises of God. That is, just because the world is wicked and he's going to bring judgment doesn't mean the promises to his people, to those that belong to him, are invalidated or in some way null and void. So even when we talk about judgment, the faithfulness of God needs to be upheld in our hearts. Amen? You need to remember God is faithful. He's faithful to bring judgment, but he's faithful to his people. So even though we know that day is coming soon, perhaps, we we don't question God's faithfulness. And it's not too difficult for him to bring judgment and yet spare his righteous ones, righteous by faith. So that's encouraging. So even as we see judgment on the way, we we know that God is faithful and we can have comfort in our hearts because of that truth. Now, the Lord would make his descendants, that is Abraham's descendants, into a great nation. The Lord would bless him. In fact, he would bless all mankind through his descendants and specifically one descendant, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. To whom is he speaking? He's speaking to the Lord, the very Lord that would take on flesh many years in the future but he would take on flesh and become the answer to this prayer. Think about that. Here you have God, I believe the Son of God, speaking with Abraham about a moment in time that has not yet happened where he would enter time and space and he would become the answer to the prayer, that he would become the answer to the promise. He would be the promise. The Lord would bless all mankind, specifically through one descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham was chosen to direct his descendants to keep the way of the Lord. And each of us, especially you parents, you've been commanded, chosen, in fact, to direct your descendants to keep the way of the Lord. There is no greater and more important work than for us to instruct our descendants by faith in the ways of the Lord. This is why we have Sunday school. Right after worship, the kids go next door, and they're broken up into their different age groups and they are learning at the level they can about the way of the Lord. Everyone in our church is being encouraged to follow his ways at the level that they can receive. Even in the nursery, they're learning about God's love and being cared for, whether it's the songs they sing or the love that the caregivers show the children, all the way up to, let's say, our junior high, who get together after the service to discuss the Bible study with those that are ministering to them. All of this is not just, let's, let's fill up a couple hours, let's figure out how to fill our calendar, and, and let's figure out how we can take a Sunday morning and keep everybody busy. No, no, not at all. This is intentional on the part of our leadership here to make sure that all of us, every one of us, are keeping the way of the Lord. And in order to do that, we need to study his word. Amen. Well, that was the first thing Abraham's told, He's chosen to direct his descendants to keep the way of the Lord, and clearly he did. They were called to do what is right and just until the coming of Messiah, when he himself would come and teach us these things. And we study the teachings of Jesus today as well. Sadly, the Jewish people failed at some point in this regard, but thankfully the Lord never fails, amen? God keeps his promises, and aren't we glad because we fail? we fail. But God is faithful. Amen? And so, the Lord wanted Abraham to know these things. He wanted him to know, or at least remember, what he's about to do for him. He had made these promises already, but now he wanted Abraham to know what he was about to do to these cities. So keep in mind, God's revelation is twofold. It's, it's the preservation and the salvation of the righteous, by, who are righteous by faith, and the judgment of the wicked who reject God and his word. So these are two things that maybe we don't relish the judgment of the wicked, but we do want wickedness to be dealt with. You, you can't be a sincere worshiper of God and not notice the wickedness in the world and not cry out for justice. You can't, you can't worship God and say, well, that's okay. Don't judge these wicked people because let's be honest. We want mercy, but we, we need justice. And God will bring his judgment in his time. But he tells Abraham what he's about to do in verses 20 through 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, did God really need to have a face-to-face? Did he really need to go there? No. But you see, God operates In personal, relational ways, he's chosen to. It's more for our benefit than for his. I don't really think he needed to come down and spend time with Abraham. Or that he needed to go to the cities of the plains and see what was going on there. He knows all things. But because he's a relational God, he chooses to act and to be a relational God. He wants to be. We're told in the scriptures where two or three are gathered, he's in our midst. So we know that God desires to be relational, and and this is a, a testimony to that. And the Lord wanted Abraham to know what he was about to do. These cities would be judged for the outcry of those who were abused by their wickedness. Where's the outcry coming from? It's not coming from the wicked. It's coming from the righteous crying out who are being abused by the wicked. So every child, every woman, every man, any person... In our culture today, who, who feels that the wickedness that's, that's coming against them, they feel abused and they're crying out to God. God hears our prayers. And he's going to bring judgment in his time upon the wicked. And that is encouraging. Now, I know you feel like me. You're like, yeah, well, when? And I, I feel that way too. But just know that when God brings judgment, you'll know it. And it'll be in his time. Nothing is too difficult for him. They would be judged, and this is for the outcry of those abused by these wicked people. See, they were living ungodly, filthy, and lawless lives. They had given themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Sound familiar? We live in Sodom, if you will. We live in that same culture today, and it's only gotten worse. But let me just say something, because I think we forget this. Do you really think Maybe it's more pervasive and it's more out in the open today than it was when I was a kid. But do you really think it's any less perverse than it was in the 70s or even the 50s? I mean, when you look at history, you're going to find out that even in the Gilded Age, people were doing their nonsense. If you go back far enough during the Revolutionary War, things were going on in Europe. They were going on here. Wickedness has existed forever. Think about the early church in the first century. I dare say that the culture of ancient Rome was even worse than the culture we find ourselves in today. As bad as what we're dealing with is today, I don't even think it was as bad as 1st century, 2nd century Rome, Europe. So, what does that mean? That means that God can do anything in his time. And if the church thrived during those times of persecution and wickedness, the church can certainly thrive today. Oh, Pastor Tim, oh, I read these articles the dechurching of America. I read an article this week. The dechurching of America. This is a new term. This basically means all is lost because America is being dechurched. Look around. Are you in church today? Say amen. amen. I wasn't dechurched. Were you? Dechurched. You know what that tells me? There were people who were going to church who probably had no good business being in church and they're no longer going to church. And I'm okay with that. I was saying this at the back door today. It's so cold, you know, we keep those back doors closed while people are coming and out, so the heat stays in. But, you know, people are in and out and in and out. And I said, I feel like my mom we used to say, in or out? Because <laughs> we come in the house, the door slam. Out, in, out, in, out. And finally, my mom would lock the door and say, in or out? Make a decision now. If you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. I think that's what happened during COVID. I think what God said during his... Whatever that was we went through, whether it was real or not, certainly wasn't as bad as our culture made it out to be. As bad as it was, it wasn't as bad. That's what I'm trying to say. It was bad, but it wasn't as bad as they made it out to be. During that time, people stopped coming to church. And that was the attempt at dechurching. But you know what's interesting here at Calvary Chapel? We grew as a church during that time. We didn't close our doors. We never did. You came to the church on a Sunday morning. It wasn't one Sunday morning. I wasn't here, and it was never a Sunday where I was going to tell you you couldn't come in. Yeah, so I guess we kind of bent the rules a little bit. You know, I guess we didn't listen to the voice that we were hearing telling us we shouldn't be in church. Now, many people chose not to come out, especially in the beginning. But then after a little while, people realized what was really going on, and the place was full, and it's, and it's been full, and, and we're so grateful. It's not because we're smart. It's just because God is faithful. So there are churches that are no longer in existence because of the way they responded to that. And there are many of you who are here today who stopped going to your church because it was closed. And then you started coming here. Now you're here and you don't want to leave. And that's great. We don't want you to. But it doesn't make me happy to hear the church is closed because of COVID. I don't like that term de-churching. I don't like it at all. It, It makes it sound as if somehow the enemy won. But the last time I checked... I was told, you were told, we were told, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. The true church of Jesus Christ has existed through the centuries because we can't be dechurched. It'll never happen. Oh, they can take away our lives, they can round us up and kill us, but they can't dechurch America. They can't dechurch the world. If you go to a country like Iran or even North Korea, you'll find Christians. You might have to try really hard to find them because they're in hiding. But from what I understand and all the things I've read, some of these countries are experiencing revival under the radar. You know, in America, when we have a revival, we write books about it and let everybody know and pat ourselves on the back. Look at us. But in countries where real revival is taking place, true revival, you won't hear about it because they're in danger. So why am I saying these things? Because I want you to understand that as bad as things are today... They've been worse. They've been better. But God is still the same. Nothing's changed with him. And all things are still possible, and God can do all things. So why have you lost hope? Why has the church lost hope? Why do we look at our culture and think somewhere we're playing defense? Brothers and sisters, we're on offense. The gates of hell won't prevail against us. We have the ball. We're heading toward the end zone, if you will. We we are the ones charged by God, empowered by God to bring the gospel to the world, we're not on defense, not at all. We're on offense. But if you're hiding in your bomb shelter waiting for the world end, you're, you're, you're sitting the bench, you're not even in the game. And too many churches have taken an approach where we don't want to ruffle any feathers, God forbid we say anything, we might get uh, deplatformed, we might get un, uh, unfriended, we, 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 we might be unpopular... Uh, people may not like us anymore. I, I think you've probably realized by now, I don't really care. And we really shouldn't. We've got a job to do. We've got a mission to fulfill. and God can do all things. So the Lord's about to visit them, this, these cities of the plains, to bring out the righteous and destroy the wicked. Now, I don't know when, but there'll come a day when the Lord will bring his righteous people out of this wicked world and judge the world. Now, we just, a couple of years ago completed a study in the book of Revelation, right? So we know that a day will come when God will take his people out of this world. He's not going to judge the world with us in it. Or if we are in it, he's going to preserve us. We're never going to experience the judgment of God. That doesn't mean we won't be persecuted, clearly. It doesn't mean we won't lose our lives doing what God has called us to do. But it does mean that God will never judge us because he doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked and we're righteous in him amen so he's about to bring judgment and abraham because he's a good man and because he has family in sodom is very concerned that god not judge the righteous with the wicked and so we read in verses 22 through 23 excuse me 22 through 33 we read of an interesting conversation between the Lord and Abraham. Verse 22, the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Notice that word Lord in your Bibles is Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the name of God. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? You see the heart of Abraham as an intercessor here. Far be it from you to do such a thing, in verse 25, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will you not judge, uh, will you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, Abraham is, is not being disrespectful, but he's right. It would be wrong to judge the righteous with the wicked. And the Lord isn't going to do that, as we'll see. Notice in verse 26. He says, Far be, in verse 25, Far be it from you will uh, not the judge of all the earth do right. And the Lord said in verse 26, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, I want you to look around. I didn't count this morning. I think we're at least 50 today. So my, my point is this. like We're waiting for God to destroy the United States. And there's enough people in this sanctuary today that god wouldn't destroy the united states and that's just for our sake or us with it that's kind of important to think through as much as we believe that god is going to just nuke this place you have to understand something we may nuke ourselves but god isn't going to do it not with us here not with us here So the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? And I like this. Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? See what he did there? This is some good haggling. They call it handling in in, uh in Yiddish, I believe. So if I find 45 there, the Lord points out, he said, I will not destroy Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? Then he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Now, I understand in the Middle East and many Middle Eastern cultures, when you go to the market, there's an expectation of haggling. and, and In fact, it's part of the culture. And it kind of disturbs us in the West because we have this thing where it's like the price is the price for the most part. Unless you're buying a mattress or a car. Uh, there are a couple of things like that where we, I mean, who really goes in and pays M- MSRP, right? Who does that? And by the way, mattress salesmen are notorious for this as well. You go, and, the price is never the price on a mattress or a car. Now, there are other things like that. But when's the last time you went to Trader Joe's to buy tomatoes and you said, how much for those tomatoes? Well, the price is right there, you know, three ninety-nine. How uh, about two ninety-nine? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. The price is the price. 325, you know, it's like we don't do that because that's not part of our culture, but in bazaars and in marketplaces throughout the world, there is this understanding. In fact, it's expected in the Middle East that it, it, the price, you ask what the price is, and well, I couldn't let it go for less than $5, 350. Because I want to be nice, I'll give it to you for 375. You know, they go, they go back and forth, and if you don't do that, they're confused, If you go, oh, $5, that's a good price. They look at you like, what in the world just happened? They're actually insulted because you didn't go through this little connection that relationally happens when you buy something. So Abraham, in much the same way that many people do today, really haggled about how God would bring his judgment. He interceded. He interceded before the Lord on behalf of the righteous living in Sodom. Now, he appealed to the justice and the mercy of the Lord in order to spare this city. Now, why is that important? Because, brothers and sisters, is that how you pray? As I have to catch myself sometimes. The things I'm thinking in my heart, they're a little wicked. Like, the next time he climbs the stairs to that airplane. I didn't say who. What are you thinking? And I have to catch myself because, you know, I pray things that are pretty wicked, to be honest. But I have to leave that judgment with the Lord. So the better way to pray is, Lord, you bring your judgment in your time according to your will. Amen? So uh, he appealed to the justice and the mercy of the Lord in order to spare the city. Are you praying for the culture we live in? Because, by the way, the reason I get up here every week is because we're trying to reach the culture with the truth. I don't sit around thinking, ah, I've got to preach another Sunday. I wish God just destroyed this planet already. That's not how I think, no. But I do want God to judge the wicked. I do. I'm not going to lie. I do. But notice his nephew Lot was living in Sodom and with his immediate family. We know that from chapter 14. And Abraham knew that the Lord does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And he knew that the Lord would never do something that was unrighteous. So he's trying to get a confirmation that God isn't going to destroy the people he loves. The question is whether they're righteous or wicked. And so the Lord heard all of Abraham's petitions, agreed to show mercies. He started by petitioning for 50 righteous people in the city, ultimately haggled his way down to 10 righteous people in the city. And the Lord graciously agreed to spare the city for just 10 righteous people. Now do you understand why our culture hasn't been judged yet? Do you understand? God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. Now, the world is a wicked place, but God is not a wicked God. He's a righteous God. Amen? So hopefully it gives you a better perspective. But sadly, as we're about to see in next week's study, there were not even 10 righteous people in Sodom. When things get that bad, yeah, judgment's going to come, but he still calls his people out. Abraham knew that Lot had a wife and two unmarried daughters. He may have also had sons and married daughters with husbands. And had these people, had there been 10 of them, and probably was at least 10 of them in his family, if 10 of them had been righteous, Sodom would have been spared. But sadly, they were not. And so the Lord left, and Abraham went home to wait to see what would happen, hoping that there would be at least 10. We're about to see, next week's study, wasn't the case. There were only four that were considered righteous by faith. And they had their own issues, as we'll see. But they were righteous by faith. The scripture in the New Testament calls Lot, righteous Lot, and he was living in a wicked place. So as I asked the worship team to come up, understand this truth. We know that it's not too difficult for God to do anything, and nothing is too hard for him. But we also know that God is not going to judge the righteous with the wicked. So you really don't have anything to worry about. At least you don't have God's judgment to worry about. So in the time that we are here, in the the time that we are living, uh, it is vitally important that we, like Abraham, intercede on behalf of of the righteous in our culture. That we cry out to God to be merciful to the righteous. That he does bring his judgment on the wicked, but that he spares the righteous. And maybe you can even pray that the wicked would give their hearts to God and become righteous by faith. These are the things we pray for. It sounds impossible. Well, it's because it is. But is anything too hard for him? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you continue to work in our hearts and show us the truth of your grace and your mercy. Oh, Lord, you bring bring judgment on the wicked to the third and fourth generation. But bless thousands of generations of those that love you, according to your word in the book of Exodus. You've chosen to be good to us. You died on a cross for our sins. You rose again. You're coming again. We have nothing to fear. Even if we pass on, there's no fear in our future for eternity. If we suffer and are persecuted here for righteousness' sake, we know that we're only fulfilling your word. But we need not despair. And we do pray for our world. We pray also for our nation, our culture. Oh yeah, we're living in wicked days with wickedness all around us. You could bring revival, but even if you don't, we're revived this morning. By your Spirit, as we contemplate this truth, you're not going to judge us with them. And you won't bring judgment on them until you choose to. And Everything we learn in your Scripture tells us that either we'll be preserved through that judgment or even taken out of this world, through death or rapture, whatever, we will not be judged the wicked. So, Lord, we have no reason to despair. In fact, we have reason to rejoice this morning. I pray for every heart that's here today, those visiting with us, and those that may be listening online. We ask that all hearts would be bowed before you as we consider your great mercy, that we give our hearts afresh and anew to you, and by faith believing that you can do all things, and that you've promised to bless us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.